Hi, I'm Edward Cohen. Welcome to Tangent. Today on Tangent, we have Ben Miller, co-founder and CEO at Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-consumer private markets manager, including real estate, venture capital, and private credit. Hi, Ben. Where does this podcast find you? In Washington, D.C. Beautiful. Capital of the empire. Let's jump into it. Fundrise. So for almost 100 years, government regulation has made it virtually impossible for individuals to invest and access private markets. Now, Fundrise is disrupting the status quo by empowering now over 2 million users to invest in high-end private market assets. Ben, you've been at it since 2012, but you didn't start with your current model. Would love to learn how you arrived at the current model that's enabling so many individuals to become investors. Yeah, I feel like anybody who's ever started a company and scaled it learns that a lot of the things you think are true end up not being true, and you have to follow the customer. And so we began the business by launching uh, real estate deals, basically democratizing investing into uh, single real estate deals. And we did that because I was primarily a real estate person and that's how real estate people think. And so I built a model around my um, preconceived notions and probably most real estate people's preconceived notions. And over the course of a few years, I discovered that most people are not real estate not professionals. You know, by far, the majority of people are not real estate professionals. And even real estate professionals, like, maybe aren't, aren't, you know, aren't that good at real estate investing. I mean, everybody's got opinions, but uh, when it comes down to it, it, it it's um, there's a lot of bias in the process. <clears throat> so, so we moved the product to become funds, real estate funds, uh, tech funds, credit funds. Um, the fund might be a strategy, like build for rent or industrial, or it might be a sort of all, all all diversified fund. But over time, essentially, we, we modeled ourselves on Blackstone or private equity model, which is if you look at the biggest real estate investors in the world, they don't do deal by deal investing, they do funds. And and we got there for this very similar reasons. You, know, you can have a professional uh, institutional investor like California, uh, California Pension Fund, CalPERS, or, or New York State teachers, they manage hundred billion dollars and they would rather invest in a fund than a deal. More diversified. Well, you know, you're basically ultimately paying someone to do the work. Mm-hmm. And um, and one of the, miscon- the misconceptions of real estate is that the investment is the most important part when actually like the operations are just as important. And if you're not operating the asset, you're just investing in it, you know, you're missing half of the analysis. And and so um, the idea that you're uh, picky, choosy, deal deal by deal investment, I think we're seeing the that start to fall apart in this environment where capital calls, there's a lot of, uh, of operating issues in every property. And because they're not a fund, they're deal by deal, the manager is handicapped with his ability to make good decisions and re- re- recapitalize deals or refinance them in ways that um, make it through this downturn. So it, it it's basically like, if you look at most internet companies, most internet companies are actually an online version of an old line company. Like Amazon is a similar online version to Walmart or Sears. Yeah, or or um, yeah, I think Walmart. But anyways, <laughs> um, and so we're an online version of Blackstone. You know, we had 150 copycats, and when they said, "Well, we're going to be a marketplace," I go, "Well, what's an old line version of a real estate marketplace?" I don't even know. I don't even no know. No such a thing. Yeah, no it's such not a thing. A, not a thing. It's not a thing. Maybe a brokerage firm. You know. So I, I said, "Okay, well, I'd rather be." Blackstone than a broker. So this is fascinating. This this has basically enabled you to have more visibility, more control, and uh, further 
you know, not, not guarantee the best returns always, but definitely be ahead of the curve, be, uh, delivering better results than public reads, uh, for investors. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we have, and we can deliver better results than, than, um, normally accessible to individual investors. So if you, the most common comparison we have is Vanguard read index, the Vanguard read index versus like our portfolio, um, we've outperformed it by a lot, by like, you know, thousands of basis points. And the, and that's because the Vanguard read index has like two or three, I mean, it, you know, well, has two or three um, weaknesses that have have manifested, you know, acutely in the last uh, few years, which is that it has all real estate. It's, it's an index of pretty much all real estate and half the real estate or a lot of the real estate is, is very bad today, right? So office you wouldn't want to index the office market, you know, just like you wouldn't have wanted to index the mall market. It's like a, <laughs> it's a collapsing market. So by having the index of all real estate, essentially, you're getting the good and the bad. And the, and the second thing is that there's an arbitrage opportunity between public and private markets. Sometimes public markets are better priced. Sometimes private markets are better priced. You want to go where the pricing is better. You don't want to be constrained by public or private. And our funds can, can do both and have done both. Huh. Interesting, and because it's ultimately, ultimately, like uh, one of the things I learned about finance is that the reason why managers perform badly or well is often nothing to do with a manager and much to do with the structure of their fund. Mm. And so if you can, you can only invest in office, right? A lot of times when you raise a fund from institutions, you can only do one thing: they're hiring you to do a job. That job might be invest in industrial or invest in uh, public REITs. And whether or not that's a good thing to do two years later doesn't matter because that's the job they hired you to do and that's the only thing you can do. All about the incentives. If you're incentivized to deploy a fund in an asset class or in a region, then that's what you're going to do, regardless if the data suggests that that's uh, riskier than what you could be doing, e even within the real estate space. That's true, but I mean, I would just sort of, I'll be more generous that like you, you were hired to do a job. Like if I hired my janitor, to clean my floors and they go off and start to paint the house, I'd say, what the hell are you doing? Fair. You know, it's, it's not your job. That you, I didn't hire you to do that. <laughs> right. Fair. And, but if, and so, if the janitor sees the backyard that is also dirty and cleans it up as well, maybe you'd, you'd be appreciated. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe they ripped <laughs> up like the, the flowers, not realizing those were like not weeds. Hey, so, what are you doing back there? Yeah, you're not a, you're not a professional in that thing, you know, landscaper. <laughs> so so that that's what I mean by structure is that... the. What's happened since, take 2019. 2019 and 2020 had a massive change in the market. We had a pandemic. 2020, 2021, you had a massive change in the market, return to work, inflation. 21 and 22, you had basically then change the interest rate environment and everything changed. And so over the course of three to four years, massive changes over and over again. Any job you were hired to do, it become um, obsolete. Mm -hmm within 12 months. and But the, the structure of the financial industry prevents you from being flexible. Right, right. And that's what I mean by by the the advantage we have is we have more flexibility. That's a so very good can, point. Like, I mean, like if you look in, 20, in mid 2021, like June, let's say, when everything was go, go, go. If you had gone 100% to cash and held cash for two years, you would have outperformed every other asset class. Cash. Name a manager who can be 100% in cash for two years when cash was generating zero all of 2021 and most of 2022. I mean, it would just require an inhuman level of discipline and lack of FOMO and, I mean, many other things. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it would require a lot of the manager, but I would, I would think the LP would sue you. That's <laughs> you weren't hired to do that job. You weren't hired to get me the highest possible returns. You were hired to do to work. Um, yeah, you were hired to do work. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, let's talk about the fundraise platform. So it, it is. I find it fascinating that it's end to end, correct, for the investor. Yes, over the last ten years, we have been like a caterpillar. We've sort of chewed our way from one end of the value chain to the other. So from the investor all the way to the property and maybe even all the way to the tenants. Well, so what does that mean? Uh, you know, what are the key components that improve the, the experience and, and the returns overall? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like is invisible to most people in the same way that like, you know, I go to the grocery store and I don't know where that orange came from and what how it got to my, you know, my, mm-hmm. my or even on a restaurant, right? It's more like a restaurant actually when you're an investor. You don't mm-hmm. know, you know, how many people were involved in picking that orange and creating it, putting it on a train, sending it to a, a ship, and then the ship had to get to, you know, harbor. They had to uncrate it and then, you know, put it to a logistics warehouse. And then the warehouse had to then send it to the store and the store had to, and there were buyers and there were like all sorts of quality controls around it. That's actually how uh, the investment industry works too. It's mm-hmm. just, it's instead of an orange, it's a, Dollar, mm-hmm. your dollar moves through a supply chain, but y- you don't you don't see that happen. So in the yep. traditional in the traditional world, right? You are an investor. I just got to do one version of the supply chain. You're an investor. You put your money into a um, pension fund, right? A defined benefits pension fund or a defined contribution. That pension fund manager then, um, right? That's sort of like the a first stop in the supply chain. They take yep. that money. They aggregate it with lots of other oranges, lots of other dollars. And they may give it to um, a private equity fund manager after they basically selected, a, you know, they've gone through a review a bunch. They give it to private equity fund manager. <laughs> um, that pension fund has charged you some amount of money for that fees and operating expenses for the first step in the process. The private fund equity manager is charging you two and 20. And they're basically out there looking for mostly sponsors, mm-hmm. right? So they're looking for a real estate partner who's got a certain kind of real estate deal. <laughs> And they're going to give the money to the sponsor. And the sponsor basically is going to, um, maybe they, they give the money to a multifamily developer. They're going to build yep. a part of building. Okay. So there's a third person in the chain and all three of them have taken fees. All three of them have charged carried interests and all three of them have operating expenses that they've charged to that money. And then they got to send the money. Maybe the building gets built. Maybe the building uh, gets sold and they got to send the money back to the supply chain. And, and along the way, there's 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 there are brokers who took fees on buying the asset. There are brokers who took fees on selling the asset. There are financing fees and uh, capital market brokers who who um, were involved in, in the financing all up and down from like just maybe in the raising of the money in the first place, there was a capital market like fundraiser. So you just have the supply chain where what's happening is behind the scenes, 50% of your return is disappearing through the cost of the supply chain. A lot of more extraction than value creation. Uh, I, I mean, I could argue that there is value creation. I'm not I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying this is how it works. Right, right. But <clears throat> now technology has enabled us to not, to, to streamline essentially a lot of these components. You know, over time, technology will move that dollar much more efficiently. Right. And you can see the parallel because it happened in the public markets. You know, if you go back 50 years ago, public markets had uh, brokers and they had commissions and they had middle, you know, uh, the, 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 um, called, uh, the market makers would charge fees and, and, and there were, you know, the, the trading floor had 
thousands or hundreds of people on it. And now it's 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 all become driven by software, right? You can go online, put your money with a, you know, uh, online online zero fee broker. That money can move to the markets. It can. It's all done by machines, all super efficient. Mm-hmm. And over time, essentially, it's very very hard to beat that index. Right. The index right. basically outperforms because it's super efficient, and it's hard to add more value in a, against a super efficient um, mm-hmm. machine. And so that's what's happening. That's what's happening in private markets. It's happening little by little, but you know, over time, especially with the advent of AI, it's going to become you know machine-driven, efficient, super low cost. It's going to take you. Know, it probably takes another ten, maybe even fifteen years. But it's you're going to end up a place where it's just it's almost like the public markets and efficiency. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about AI in just a second. But your most recent banger has been your innovation fund, which allows investors to participate in tech startup investing uh, even before their IPO. Uh, the fund includes companies like Canva, Databricks, Service Titan, Roblox, ZoomInfo, um, as well as some public ones too. So what, what's the big opportunity in democratizing VC, venture capital uh, investing, and, and why are you doing it? Well, so for real estate, we we built a technology backbone that is end-to-end, that is, a, that is slowly but surely kind of wringing the costs out, and that supply chain can be replaced with with software. And we, and that also, when you when you bring technology to bear, what happens is you lower the cost. And actually, as you lower the cost, you increase access, right? Not everybody could afford a car, but when the cars get less expensive, then everybody can buy one. So part of the, what's happening with our democratizing investment is that it's actually about making it so efficient that you actually, anybody can do it. And that supply chain transformation is true for not just real estate, private equity. It's also true for, you know, private credit or or venture funds, right? It's the same supply chain, just different asset classes. And if you were to say, you know, what are the best investment investment classes in the world outside the public markets, you know, I I believe it's real estate and venture capital. And so then you you say, well, how do I democratize investing in venture capital? We've already democratized investing in real estate. Um, and that took some work, took some regulatory work, right? We had to basically work with the SEC, figure out a model because no one ever done it before. Mm-hmm. And then we had to get access to the best companies, which like when I launched real, you know, the real estate part of our business, everybody told me it's impossible. You can't do it. Who are you? You know, you have, why don't you just rely on the big guys like like uh, J.P. Morgan or Starwood, and the same, I got the same feedback on venture. Who are you? You can't get access to the best companies. Blah blah blah. And we did it again. I mean, we can, we are our venture portfolio. You know, I would argue. I mean, I, I I'll, I'll argue that our portfolio of late stage private tech companies is as good as any venture portfolio in the world today, which is insane. I mean, that's like, that is insane thing to say. And, and But if I look at the companies we own, and not all of them we have disclosed yet, but we're, we're coming, you know, Databricks, Service Titan, Canva, DVT, um, these companies are actually the best private tech companies in the world. The only one we don't own yet is OpenAI. Yeah. But if I were if I were to say what are the best private tech companies in the world today, you know, we have like a lot of them. And, and we don't charge leaders, and we don't leader, yeah, leaders in their in their categories. Yeah, total leaders. And we don't charge a carried interest. We don't charge a twenty percent carried interest. So you can get into the best tech companies in the world without a carried interest. So so that's like that's very disruptive. It's so disruptive that it's actually implausible for people at the moment. Fascinating. Um, when it comes to your real estate portfolio, you currently have almost 300 active projects, uh, around $7 billion in, in total portfolio value. 
Uh, tell us more about these projects. You know, where are you seeing the stress or where are the opportunities to create value? So I have um, two major views about real estate investing. So one is a top-down view, one's a bottom-up view. Mm-hmm. So a top-down, that the macro is the biggest driver of returns. And so you make three to five big decisions that drive almost all your returns. Mm-hmm. So one, we invested in the Sun Belt, not the big blue cities since 2015. Um, that's been a huge alpha, even though it's not that complicated. We invested in residential and industrial. We didn't invest in office and retail, right? So asset class, geography. Yeah. And and then we focus on affordability. So we want to buy workforce housing, not, you know, high-end um, luxury rental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so a handful of macro decisions and also low leverage and, and things like that, that end up making us very resilient to a, um, a, financial shock, which I went through the 2008 financial crisis. So I came away saying, well, these things are, they're the whole ball game. You sort of play this ball game for eight innings and then the ninth inning is becomes like, <laughs> it's like a Super Bowl like moment. It's like, a, you have, yep. have to be prepared, prepared for that. So we, our leverage is like 50%, 55% compared to most private real estate, which should be probably 65 to 75, maybe 80%. So, mm-hmm. so so anyways, um, that's a few macro decisions. And this is actually the same thing Blackstone says, but people don't realize it. A few thematics drive most of the returns. Which are those? Which are those, yeah. And they're actually very similar to Blackstone's. Like It's like, because these are kind of obvious. You follow population, follow the follow where the major growth drivers are. And then second, in the bottom up, you have like real operational people. So the people in our organization that are glorified are like ops people, people who are calling their property manager and be like, why did you spend, you know, $200 replacing this light bulb and this one property we own, you know, we're in 20,000 apartment units and, and single family houses, like they're, they're in the weeds, they're just grinding it out. And uh, the, um, the, the person who's overvalued and overglorified is the sort of like MBA analyst who's sitting with an Excel spreadsheet. Like I think they're adding not that much value. Most of the value is being added by the person who's walking in that property. Yeah, in the trenches doing like the the what you'd say is really the blue collar work. Yep, right. I think that's so spot on in terms of what really makes the difference in in uh, creating value and delivering success in real estate. You can have the right fundamentals. You can predict where the market's going to be. But at the end of the day, it gets down to the human level. Yes, we're <laughs> going to streamline how we operate our buildings. Uh, we're going to add touchless access and a lot of good technology. But yeah, it, if we don't have the human right, like the the right human element involved, it's all going to be the waste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's um, and that's why we're end to end. We're like, we have like people who are world-class operators and that's like, you know, at the property or the tenant level. And then the other end of this, you have like uh, software engineers writing, you know, um, you know, building mobile apps for 2 million people, right? That's mm-hmm. like, those are, those two people in the same organization of a couple hundred people is like a unusual combination. Yeah. No, I think again, down to the human level now in, within Fundrise, I think that's spectacular. A lot to learn from there. In the heart of Silicon Valley, there's an organization making waves in helping solve the housing crisis, Housing Trust Silicon Valley. At Housing Trust, they provide developer financing, homeownership assistance, and lender and broker resources to help create more equitable and affordable communities. Established over 20 years ago by local businesses, community leaders, and affordable housing activists, Housing Trust Silicon Valley uses transformative housing finance and public and private partnerships 
to create a strong, affordable housing market. From those experiencing homelessness to developers, renters, and first-time home buyers, Housing Trust SV is dedicated to ensuring that every neighbor has access to safe, stable, and affordable housing. Housing Trust SV is making a difference in the 14 counties of the Greater Bay Area and Sacramento. These are communities with a common need, more affordable housing and the capital to support its development. Join the Housing Trust SV in making a lasting impact on our communities. Housing Trust Silicon Valley, where innovation meets compassion. Learn more at housingtrustsv.org. Let's move on to artificial intelligence in real estate. Um, now, by definition, AI is slightly overhyped, especially in, you know, we tend to overestimate maybe what AI will be able to accomplish in the next year or two. But I think we're also underestimating what it will be like in 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to hear from you, Ben. How are you seeing AI impact real estate, building operations? You know, any any use cases that have caught your eye? We have a team of people currently building product to leverage AI. We have actually two teams: one on the investor side, one on the property side. And so it, it's it's the my my thinking is consistent with what I said earlier, which is that over time, software will replace people, and that replacement will look like. Um, public markets. And so the steps in the sort of like evolution is like, first you have to get everything, all the information into a database, a structured mm -hmm. database. Actually, maybe not even that structured anymore because AI can, can understand unstructured data. And a lot of real estate information not in structured databases. So like, it's like, we're not even to step one. Right. And that's something we're working on. <laughs> and then after you get an structured database, then you have to start putting, you know, whether it's AI or other kinds of like software on top of it. But what happens is that it, it's going to automate or eliminate a lot of the knowledge worker activities. And so you end up, instead of needing like for a real estate company that has 10 people and most of those are analysts and kind of like people looking at Excel spreadsheets, it ends up being like three people and two of them are operations people and one of them basically the principal. And so right. you're going to, you don't need an army of analysts oh. and, and the the part that's going to surprise real estate people is that real estate industry thrives on hiding data. <laughs> they don't want data transparency. Yep. It's it's not what they're looking for because they thrive on taking advantage of information asymmetry. Yep. A gated and environment. That's going to go away. As that goes away, you'll start seeing that a lot of the fees you pay are actually not justified because there's no alpha because it's the information will make that obvious and that will take time. And and so the combination of like automating workflows, automating analysis, um, automating the, the, the data gathering and the knowledge workers will basically start to go away because you won't mm -hmm. need as many. And probably this is what we're trying to do, collapse the supply chain because all mm -hmm. these institutions that exist, this is what Tesla did. Tesla, Netflix, they both did the same thing, whether it was like content for for entertainment or it was cars, the old, I'll do cars for a minute. The way cars used to work before Tesla, is you have distribution, like so pension funds or wirehouses distribute the information, distribute the yep. deals, right? The uh, the investments. And that's what car dealers do. Mm -hmm. Then you have, well, maybe I should flip it. Well, let me just read you this. I'll flip it to the other side. So let's flip it. Let's flip it. So you start with how are cars made? Most of the parts are made by by subs. Yep. So by so instead of having um, Ford making the car, actually like there's a window uh, maker that makes the glass and there's a company that makes the windshield wipers and all the components are made by other companies. 
and the and Ford or Blackstone, not Blackstone, Ford or Starwood sort of assembles it all. Mm-hmm. And there's an assembly, and then there's a distributor, which is the dealer yep. or, or or the wirehouse. <laughs> and so there's like a there's the distributor, there's the aggregator or assembler, and then there's the um, producer, which is the which is the person who builds the apartment building or builds the you know the subcomponent of the car, mm-hmm. like the like the you know the leather seats. Yeah. So and so, what Tesla Tesla has only one company that does all of that. They collapse the entire supply chain. Same thing with Netflix, right? They distribute it online. They have algorithms that basically show you what you want. They aggregate all the content, and they actually produce it themselves too, right? They have, and so that what technology companies often do to industries, they they actually they they bundle or they integrate, and they and that basically allows them to reinvent. It. And that's oh, happening. It's exactly what's going to happen to all of finance in the private markets. I think fascinating. And when you describe, especially the car supply chain, I mean, you're like, wow, assembling this is actually has been impressive and super hard. And now a hundred years after Toyota started, that's what's going to make them vulnerable because uh, it's time to collapse supply chains because now we have the technology and we know how to do it. Uh, yeah. And we also have computers. Yeah. Just to, the, the problem with that model is that if you want to reinvent the car, you can't because you don't make the car. You only assemble it. Yeah. You just don't like, control. You don't control the how things are made. Yeah. Same thing with airplanes. Airplanes are so Boeing assembles things. It's 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 essentially like most major you know uh, uh, companies are assemblers. And Blackstone's actually just to pick on Blackstone for a second. They're actually they're they are vertically integrated. They own their suppliers, which most people don't know. Like Starwood doesn't, and neither does Carlisle, and neither does. You know, Brook, uh, Brookfield, but car, but um, Blackstone did go out and buy most of their, most of their suppliers, and their suppliers are Link Logistics and Livecore, and they QTS, which is data centers, and so they they actually realized that they had to have control over their um, their entire value chain, and um, we do too. It's just we do it with software, and they do it with you know money. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Money money enables you to vertically integrate. Um, bringing it back to AI, so you you hinted at maybe one one commercial real estate asset class that will that is more fragile. I mean, it's already been fragile since COVID. But offices, if you're gonna reduce headcount, then naturally office space will be uh, hurt more. Um, do you see any you know commercial real estate asset classes that are more resilient or that will actually benefit from from AI? Yeah, let me do a. Uh, analogy. So basically, technology has done this to real estate multiple times. <clears throat> so the internet launched, and e-commerce basically destroyed retail and built up industrial logistics. And so, work from home or remote work is a technology. People don't. It's not obvious until you sort of think about that. Zoom is basically infrastructure, and so Zoom. The, the the remote work technology destroyed office and is building up residential because people move they're from being in the office to, to spending time at home and so it's driven up home values a lot so AI basically similar dynamic where it it's going to build up one part of the real estate industry and destroy another part and so the the it's not clear but it seems likely to me that it's probably building up data centers and that's that's like um, Blackstone's ahead of the curve on that they bought QTS so you basically you're gonna, you're gonna need tons of data centers because you need tons of compute, and it's going to tear down an office more because where you needed 10 knowledge workers, you're only going to need five. And so you have like, um, just like e-commerce, just like work from home, these technology trends 
like they're not they're not done. E-commerce is going to continue to take more and more of the share of retail. Work from home is going to continue to innovate and drive better and better virtual reality and 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 different kinds of technology it makes it more likely to stay at home and not go to the office. And the same thing's going to happen with AI. And, and also probably these trends converge over time too, all three of them. And so um, the real estate industry mostly ignores the technology drivers until you, they can't ignore them anymore. Uh, that's what I mean by like a handful of macro trends. Geography, it's really three things, geography, technology, and demographics. Those three things are the majority of alpha in real estate, but because most people are stuck in a narrow part of the world, they're stuck, they spend 20 years doing office, they can't really change their their resume, so they're just going to come around to different LPs saying office is a good investment. So it's not that they don't know about these three things, but knowing doesn't help them. Yep, clearly doesn't. Maybe we're going to end up having mixed use with data centers and housing together one day. Who knows? Office. Actually, we've looked at this. I think office will could be replaced by data centers. And and we so we, we actually have an office building we're looking at. Can you replace this office building? Um, leave the infrastructure there, but actually refill it with with um, with a data center. And that's something I think will happen. Uh, as a pretty good use. Mm. Uh, mostly data centers need fiber, like big fiber pipes. And they need electricity. And so a lot of office buildings have both those things. And so it's like a, a good adaptive reuse of-, of Now old... that is interesting. Mm-hmm. That That is really interesting because office to resi is what's taking the headlines. And personally, mm-hmm. I would love every single empty office uh, in downtowns to turn into housing, but just in practice, that's just not how the bricks work. Uh, and fascinating that data centers, which we all need, uh, could be reu- replaced. Uh, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Office. Let's uh, shift gears now. Economic and real estate trends for 2024 and beyond. Um, during our discovery call, you and I both agreed how you know this short-term men- short-termism mentality, whether it be because it's our human condition or because we have the incentives of checking quarterly earnings in the public markets or whatnot. But uh, it, it really, you know, what things play out in the next year to it, it's it's really you know it's it's. It's more important to focus longer term than that. But in current economic environment, you know, what's your outlook on real estate in the next few years? In downturns, uh, let me really flip that. When things are hot, like 2021, most prices or most asset classes converge in, and there's a lot of correlation. So the difference between uh, a core class A asset and a suburban asset in a tertiary market they still end up pricing similarly. Difference between like a good tech company and a bad tech company, they, they, there's just so much convergence because what happens is the risk premium, or another way to say it is the, qual- the quality premium, goes away when there's a lot of money. When things go, could go bad and there's not a lot of money, you see that reverse and, and things start pricing very differently based on the quality of the underlying assets. You see and then the magnificent seven, right? The Google and Facebook and Nvidia doing very well, and you see a bunch of tech companies like you know Lemonade or you know a bunch of SPACs basically priced really poorly. So there's a big dispersion in downturns. I uh, wanted to bring up, I mean, Fundrise offers private credit, fixed income opportunities, and since the failure of multiple regional and sector-focused banks, especially the ones focused on real estate, lending, and tech, it seems like being a lender is the hottest thing out there, and that everyone and their mothers are lending in real estate. 
where where do you see the lending opportunities in in commercial real estate penciling out in the next couple of years? Are there pockets of real estate that have more room to create value, or where incentives are more aligned between borrower and lender, uh, or even where demand and supply of real estate uh, sets more lenders up for success? So I'll reframe it because I think private credit is like a, a mislabeled version of what's actually happening. So I would say that most of lending for the last uh, 75 years was public lending because the banks are subsidized by the government. Because essentially what the banks are is a guaranteed return of capital because of deposit insurance. Where does deposit insurance come from? It comes from a government guarantee. So you have this implicit, sorry, you have this explicit government guarantee up to a certain amount, and then it turns out implicit to infinity because even when a bank like Silicon Valley Bank goes out of business, all the money's guaranteed. And so basically banks borrow with federal guarantees and then lend to the private markets. And the problem with that model is that it's rife with conflicts of interest. And that's why banks go out of business, Lehman Brothers goes out of business, and you see all these financial crises. And and so private credit is really just a is a, a a lending or is lending without government guarantees. And I can imagine a world where that's actually much better, it's more expensive, but it has less conflicts of interest and then less financial instability. And so the regulators don't like it. They call it an unregulated part of the market. But but I call it a, 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 a basically it's, it's actually an unbiased part of the market or it's it's basically how lending should work. And I don't think that government should be guaranteeing deposits. And I can imagine a world where they basically goes away over time, like which I think would be a very different market. But I think it's something that it's like one of those things that a lot of big changes hide in plain sight. Like something's really big and everybody takes it as like a fact that deposits should be guaranteed, for example. But it turns out it's not a fact to say it's an assumption. And so, you know, you could see a world where all of a sudden it's no longer necessary or no longer appropriate. And so over time, private credit is going to become a bigger and bigger part of the way lending works. And we're going to discover that it's actually safer and more resilient from a systemic point of view than the banks are. Because the banks are levered 93%. According to Basel III, banks levered 93%. Private credit was is going to be generally levered, you know, two times, you know, rather than nine times. And so it's just more resilient. And so I, I think that basically it makes more sense. And that's, and that's, that's a sort of market structure uh, observation in terms of like you tactically, yeah, there's this big mismatch between the number of borrowers that need to recapitalize, need to refinance and the amount of money in the world. I mean, the, basically the whole point of the Fed's monetary policy, which is to raise interest rates and, um, and do quantitative tightening, eliminate their balance sheet, is it just dis- disappears money. Money is disappearing out of the economy. And that's what causes downturns. It's causing the market to slow. And it, basically, when there's a shortage of money, pr- money is a price by supply and demand. And so when there's not enough supply and there's a lot of demand, you're going to get really good pricing. And so we're getting great pricing. And everybody who has money can get tremendous pricing today. And that's, you know, whether you're in multifamily or doing it, you know, industrial lending, whatever it is you're lending into, the um, the the environment's the opposite of 2021. In 2021, there was excess dollars, and and dollars didn't get well priced. And so um, this goes back to my alert, earlier comment, which is that the macro drives the majority of returns. Interesting. I want to take this back for a second now that we have Jeff here uh, to the innovation fund. So Jeff, in terms of the the VC environment now that it's you no, know, it's it's a lot harder to raise money. 
uh, just because of the incentives, both at the macro level, but also what is expected of companies in terms of, you know, path to profitability and also focus on the, the, the core business model and not trying to add a bunch of sexy potential services or products that aren't really related to the core. Um, but what do you think uh, the Fundrise's innovation fund enables here uh, for companies and for the ecosystem as a whole? I think it's another amazing entrant into what I would consider a crowded space, but crowded with groups that don't necessarily understand venture economics and mm -hmm. real estate. So uh, we were thrilled when we heard about what Fundrise was doing. And, uh, hopefully we'll get to do a bunch of deals together. Absolutely. I mean, I think- We have. Well, I think we've done, yeah. I think at least one or two of our deals, we came in, came into Jetty, which I'm pretty sure you're an investor in. Yeah. Nope. Not Jetty. Are you, are you an Inspectify? Zach. Zach. Nope. And Meta, yeah. Metaprop. We, Zach um, and I look alike, but we're not the same person, Ben. <laughs> we're not the same person. <laughs> Despite popular belief. Yeah, I think uh, Jetty, Jetty's investor, Metaprop was an investor in Jetty. Yeah, I mean, our advantage in venture is that we're nothing like everybody else. So there's like five or 10,000 venture funds and, and they all have a different uh, structure than us. Like I... One of my sayings I repeat a lot is ontology recapitulates phylogeny. And that's and that means that ontogeny or ontological means it's the nature of something. If you ever like studied philosophy, ontology is like a question of what's the nature of, of, of reality or being. And phylogeny is how things are structured or, or 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 grow. And so how things are structured dictate how they will behave is like a way to, to sort of simplify what that saying means. So a fish is different than a bird, right? There's just structure different. And so they just, they're going to behave differently. They have, they have gills, they have wings, whatever it is. And so we are structured radically different than a venture fund. And those radical differences over time will become more uh, manifest. And then you, people like companies and investors will say, okay, like I see in the ecosystem why they sort of are, are different and are in some cases better, in some cases worse than traditional venture fund. And being different is like a huge part of being successful. Absolutely. And actually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what stages are you guys primarily acting in? Yeah. It's a, it's, so for a venture investor, I would tell them we're a growth equity fund but most of the public never heard of a growth equity fund, so they don't know what that means. So I just say venture fund. So our portfolio, here I'll give you some sort of approximate stats in our portfolio. So the average or sort of weighted average revenue of our portfolio companies is I think about a billion dollars and the growth rate is a 73% a year. And so that is like- Wait, wait, hold on. I want to repeat <laughs> that. A, a billion in ARR? Yes. And the and average- the weighted average, yeah, because basically um, this is, you know, the companies we invested in, the majority of the fund are in Databricks, Service Titan, Canva. Uh, these companies, going, I got on the list, but these companies are all have huge revenues, huge growth, are private still. And that's a very, very, very different animal than um, like our tech, you know, we invested in a couple smaller kind of early to mid-stage prop tech companies who have like, you know, ones or tens of millions of dollars in revenue. So it's just, it's so radically different from what you do. <laughs> yeah, well, go, because I was going to say, I, I'm familiar with Jetty and I don't think they're only in there. Right, no, I mean, the, the, those two companies, Spectify and Jetty are only, I think, 5% of our portfolio and the, and the vast majority of the portfolio, like 70, 80% of it is, is our companies that are late, late stage, 
pre pre IPO and of uh, have huge huge revenues and huge growth. Like have seventy three percent annual growth rate. At, is unbelievable. Yeah, to add like hundreds of millions or billions of of revenue is it's what I was I was arguing I was saying this earlier basically that like we were lucky we launched the fund last year so we had really good vintage and so we could go out and cherry pick the best later stage companies. Um, and that basically was like mostly luck, a little bit of execution. Cause we actually ra- we raised, we actually started the fund, we launched the fund and sat on it, sat on the fundraising. We didn't really deploy it very quickly because we were waiting for the market to sort of like ripen. Um, that was like, it was hard because investors were like, I don't understand why you have $32 million in cash. <laughs> I was like, just wait a second. <laughs> Not yet. So um, yeah, it's a different animal. We're so different. We're evergreen fund. We don't we don't have so it's a it's a perpetual life fund, which is super different. So when they go public, I think DataBricks will go public. We're not we're not a seller, right? There's no reason to sell, uh, and we don't charge a carried interest. So no twenty percent carried interest, which is also you know, radically radically different. Yeah, that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, we're lucky. We're lucky because we basically can do. I think it would be hard for a venture fund to do what we did because their their LPs didn't hire them to do the job that like we ended up doing because we when we launched the fund we thought we'd do one thing and then the market changed so much like one of the so the opportunity went from like Jeff knows this but like if you were trying to invest into great mid to state mid to late stage companies in 2022 and let's say let's say like let's say 2023 so over the last 12 months the best mid to late stage companies were not raising money because they said why would I raise money in this environment? Or they already had plenty because they had taken advantage of the the environment quite late. Right. So basically the best companies and venture capital is about investing in the best, best companies because there's this power law. Uh, so the best companies weren't raising. And so we were sitting there saying, well, how do we invest this fund when the best companies don't raise money? And there were some little exceptions. We made a few small ones. We invested in Vanta which is a, a really good company, but it's very, it was a $5 million investment. And then what we discovered was you could get into the best companies by buying from funds that were motivated sellers. So we bought into some of these companies from motivated sellers at good prices. And that was not how we, how we originally thought we'd deploy, but we ended up getting into, I, I really argue, I really think it's just, these are just the best companies like you could invest in. And we got to them in a non-traditional way. That's not how normal venture funds um, invest. So in order to invest in secondaries, you need a couple of things. But one of them is you have to be a registered investment advisor. Right? And, and that means you're regulated. Most venture funds are exempt from being a regulated uh, entity, uh, but we are highly regulated. We are a registered investment advisor, and so we co- we could and did invest in um, secondaries. In the majority of the fund, we basically ended up investing in secondaries because that was where the opportunity was in 2022 and 2023. I mean, I see here a combination of being in the right place at the right time, but also goes back to timing. And you said this earlier when you were talking about your real estate strategy. You know, investing in housing and investing in industrial back in 2015 before it was that trendy. Uh, and now with venture, right at a time where you could get extremely good pricing, where where fan funding had evaporated, and where companies were afraid of getting down rounds, but uh, you were there uh, to to strategically deploy and and grow this this uh, innovation innovations fund. Yeah, and I, I just to recapitulate a couple of my points to reiterate, we had a structure that let us be flexible, and most fund managers, most sponsors, just don't have that flexibility. They just 
It, they can't be a real estate investor in multifamily and switch to industrial. They can't be investing in New York and switch to Orlando. They can't be investing in Series Bs and switch to secondaries and Series D. It's it's just not how they're designed. However, the market is moving so fast. There was a hot market and then there's a pandemic and then there was a really hot market and then there was a interest rate spike and the market collapsed again and and that happened in 36 months. And so the the necessity of flexibility has become more paramount than ever. Yeah. But the financial industry is not designed for flexibility. And so, so much of our ability to be successful is because of the way we're structured. Most people in our seat are smarter and know exactly what we know, but they can't do it. They're not allowed to. So as a, as a long-time Fundrise shareholder, what can you tell us, like for, for the original folks in investing Fundrise corporate, what what would you say to us like when we're thinking about an exit path from Fundrise how, do, how should we think about that as early investors? Yeah, so Camber Creek, it was a Series A investor. It took longer for us to get to scale because um, we had to evolve the business to find product market fit, uh, which I believe we have. And our path, or at least our, our goal is to go public. I think uh, it's you know our revenue is about $65 million this year. And so we're, we're a few years from being able to go public, but I believe we will have the metrics to hit a public offering and be well-received. And just for those who aren't familiar with public markets, typically you need 100 million in revenue. You need to be growing at a good rate, which is probably 20 to 40%. You need to be profitable, path to profitable, or if you're really profitable, then you're really well-liked. And I think we can hit all those goals. Um, and and it, it's it, a lot of the timing will depend on when the environment sort of becomes more favorable. It's that we're in a recession, we're in a real estate recession. Most of the tech industry is actually in a recession, um, and it's just going to take a while before I think the market turns around. And I think that's I think that's probably late 2025. So that's so I believe we we executed. It just took longer. Unfortunately, it took longer than I originally uh, hoped. I like that answer. I think uh, the you know in retrospect now probably the the path made a lot of sense. But when you when you're back there looking forward, you're like uh, you know this this pivot or adjusting to market to become more more flexible, right? I think looking back, probably those steps now make a lot out of sense, but it's encouraging for all entrepreneurs out there to know that even though the, the future may look a bit uh, nebulous at times, uh, you know, if you just keep focus on the on the mission, keep focus and listen to the customers and and uh and to the macro, especially if you're in real estate, uh you'll 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 come out on the on the positive side at the end. Yeah, um, let me hold, let me just say one kind of major lesson I learned. Mm-hmm. Every big, major, long-term decision we made that was right in the long term, we were punished for in the short run. Boom. And so your willingness can, can you to give, take- Can you give an example? Because I think that's a really important point. I can give you two examples. So one is we, we used to allow investors to invest deal by deal. We moved to a, uh, a diversified fund model and we lost half our customers in that transition in wow. 2016. Half our customers were like, no, I want to be in picking- you know this deal in that or that deal, and and I thought that was not going to be a scalable, resilient model. And half our customers were pissed. And you look back and you say flexibility. You have no flexibility if you're deal by deal. So that's an example. And then recently we we launched uh, we we diversified from being just real estate to doing credit and tech. And a ton of our investors are like, I don't understand why you're going to multiple asset classes. Why are you investing in tech? That's not what we, what we hired you to do. We hired you to do a job and we're pissed that you're basically doing more than that job. You're basically driving to multiple asset classes. And I I, I know because I'm, I'm in the 
trenches that that um that is way better for our investors and way better for the company because sometimes the best investment is not real estate. Sometimes it's credit or sometimes it's tech. And that flexibility is is going to drive good outcomes for everybody. But people at first basically didn't trust us to do the job. I think that's fascinating, especially because basically if, if you're getting punished in the short run, short term for something, take it with a grain of salt and you're probably doing the right thing if you're staying true to your mission and to your customers. Yeah, that's it's, it's transparency is, a, is another good example that people don't like transparency in the short run because it's, you get punished for it. Because the reason you get punished is in the beginning when you're transparent about, let's say, um, something that's like, like um, there's some drama and you're transparent about it. People don't know what to believe and they don't believe you at first. Hey. So you get punished. Because the generally reason you're getting punished is people don't believe that you're right. And, but if you are right in the long term, you win. The human condition of cognitive dissonance or of just, you know, sometimes we're not used to that maybe uh, radical uh, transparency or radical, you know, like directness, if you will. Well, it only works if you're right. <laughs> right, if, right. As long as you're sharing, you know, what's in front of you with the current, you know, with the current information that you know, that's, that's all you can do, right? Ben, collaboration superpower. If you could choose one person historic or living to do a collaboration with, to do a partnership with, who would it be? So the way I think about like um, trying to do things that are worthwhile and for me is I try to find problems that I think are significant. And then so if you tackle a big problem, then you end up having a lot of um, impact. So if I were to leave business, the one of the biggest problems in our society today is essentially we, we in our country, no longer attract po political leadership mm. that is high quality. And I don't want to be a political leader for exactly the same reason most people wouldn't. You just get punished. You get destroyed. So that's a problem because if we don't have great leadership, then we're not going to end up having a great um, country because it's just going to compound over time. And so that's a problem that I'd like to attack. And you say, well, who could help you do that? Like who would? Who? And so like uh, the best I, I could think of is Hamilton. If Hamilton came back to life and basically he was, he was, you know, this is what he was world-class at. And you basically said, okay, like, let's gather up people who care about this thing. How would you attack it? How would you try to create a, a model where people, great, great selfless leadership would end up in, in places of power in America? Like that's, that's a problem that needs, we need to address as a cultural and, and um, social problem. But Absolutely. it's one that like, we have. I mean, if our generation doesn't do it, then the next generation has to do it. But if we don't do that, God, it's good luck to us. I love that. Alexander Hamilton, founding father of the U.S. and first secretary of treasury. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think the big issue with the public sector, starting with the fact that it's hard for them to compete with the private sector on an economic incentive basis. Um, also, the nature of, of public office now is you yeah. do spend a lot or most of your time either doing fundraising or doing just public facing work and not doing the, the actual work. And I think that tends to attract certain type of people that maybe are less focused or less motivated by having a positive impact on society and, and more on just being, being out there. And, you know, yes, they have to take the punches, but also they, they do it for their own personal motivations. And I think that's, that's an issue. Then. Miller, where can listeners uh, learn more about Fundrise and connect with you? Well, I'm I'm active on Twitter at Ben Millerize uh, and Fundrise.com. Ben is also a fellow podcast host at Onward, 
Fundrise's podcast. So make sure to check it out. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming to Tanya today. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.